Welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Reese. Today, Kim Doliato and I talked to Michael Bonner. You might know him as the rapping teacher who was on the Ellen DeGeneres show a couple years back. He doesn't have a program or initiative that people can adopt, but he has a clear understanding of what makes a successful teacher, with advice that applies to anyone who works on helping children be successful in academics and in life. Here's one of my favorite quotes from the interview. We need to realize that with every child we come into contact with, we have the ability to steer them into greatness. Michael Bonner was a second grade teacher at North Carolina's South Greenville Elementary, where all the school students qualify for 100% free and reduced lunch. In early 2017, he was invited on the Ellen DeGeneres show in recognition of how he turned his failing class around through the rap tune he wrote called Read It. It explained the who, what, where, when, and why of a story and became a catchy reference for his second graders to conquer reading comprehension. Ellen flew him and the class out to make a video of it that went viral. He's also the author of Get Up or Give Up, How I Almost Gave Up on Teaching. And although he didn't give up on teaching, he also travels the country to share his inspiring take on early education. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, man. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> so, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about South Greenville Elementary, where you're now the reading teacher for first, second, and third grades? Yes. South Greenville Elementary is in the inner city of Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, it is 100% free and reduced lunch, 98% African-American because the school has been rezoned three times. I mean, it's a unique school. A lot of the students are dealing with adverse childhood experiences, but they still have this significant level of brilliance within them, and I think it's up to amazing educators to find a way to bring that out of them. Were you new teaching when you uh, went into Greenville? Yes, yes. I've been there for six years. I mean, it was around the third year mark as the beginning teacher where I really began to hit a wall trying to figure out how to deal with the behaviors they did not tell us in behavioral management or at the university level or just trying to figure out how to become more creative. And I had to have a moment with myself to decide Either I'm going to halfway do this or I'm just going to go all out and try to create my classroom to be this world um, that students love to be a part of in a place where they are challenged with love, a place where they can feel like a family, but a place where they can also grow as individuals. And I was able to create that atmosphere and, and continually do so since that moment. Building on that, you, you call your class Bonnerville, is that right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Uh, it essentially means one of the kids in my first year of fifth grade, when I taught fifth grade my first year, named it Bonneville. And it's just essentially a place where I let them know I'm the president or CEO. So they all have a, a part. They all have a, a significant role in making sure that Bonneville functions and operates in a, in a beautiful way, in a beautiful way. So it's just a way of just letting them know that we're all a family. I have designed the classroom to be a place where we have unique things in there, such as disco lights, such as gigantic pictures of our quote-unquote family members or company members around the room. Mm. Um, it's just a name. So students feel like they're a part of something special. And I feel that when people believe they are part of something special, something with a mission, they are more apt to be giving that uh, desired vision their all. Instead of just going to a regular classroom, they leave there walking into something special. So we named it Bonneville, and that's my official company name, <laughs> which was named after my classroom. So it's a pretty cool, cool dynamic that students gave life to. Definitely. You use a lot of business terms when you're talking about your class. Can you tell us how that comes to play and why in your classroom? Um, I really believe growing up when we were going inside of through our school years and dealing with the elementary, middle school, and high school level, the main message was to 
get good grades and go to college and get a good job. And that is a, a great formula for a lot of individuals who are trying to break generational poverty or whatever the case may be. But I always try to make sure that I do not exclude the entrepreneurs within my classroom. I want to make sure that they understand the importance of how business and how numbers work. Um, I do not want them to be ignorant to that process. Sure. So I constantly push them. I constantly give them the understanding of why they're coming to school. Not only are you there to learn the material, but it's essentially giving the skills that are necessary so you can be able to either have your own business or help somebody else's business become better. Sure. You did end up turning around a lot of the kind of depressed scores and success of your students. Can you tell us kind of what you think played into that, what you think caused that change in the kids? There's a lot of factors. First, it was it sounds so simple and so rudimentary about building a positive learning environment, but it's the actual most essential thing that any educator can do. When we all encounter a level of rigor, whether it is through working out, whether it's through our own personal studies, um, there is a level of frustration. And if you do not have a personal individual there in place to explain to you that rigor and frustration is a normal process of becoming better, (laughs) then individuals will burn out. So what ended up happening was in that moment, uh, I began to make sure that I was doing the environment by greeting my students every day at the door. Uh, there's a study out there that shows that when educators greet their students at the door, they are 20% more likely to be uh, engaged in the classroom and 10% less likely to actually disrupt the classroom. And then I started using whole brain teaching within my lesson, not only just putting the materials about text features and story elements on anchor charts, but actually creating movement, creating music, creating visual images that will allow those students to remember those key terms. And then most importantly, I made sure that I double dip with my guided reading, meaning that I would have an additional adult in the classroom where I would do guided reading it with me. And then we immediately go to that adult to do a second dose of that same book and come back to me to work with their writing. It was a unique setup, but it allowed us to, I mean, my classroom averaged probably 4.4 levels of growth in North Carolina, which is, which is insane. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you happen to think that the current education model might be overlooking children like your students? I think one of the things that if we look at America, I mean, in general, we just want to have an honest conversation. We haven't done such a great job with building those relationships and having those discussions across cultures. So oftentimes we write off certain individuals, particularly students of color, based upon their certain experiences that they may have. But studies are showing, such as adverse childhood experiences, are showing that all children deal with all types of trauma every single day. Mm. So the goal for us has to be, how can we begin to teach all of our children and inform them and engage them in a way that is positive? So one of the terms that is coming up now is culturally uh, responsive teaching, which is very important, but people must understand in order to participate in culturally responsive teaching, you actually have to know that culture. In order to know a culture, you have to actually spend time with people from that culture and become better at knowing what makes that individual or that embodiment tick. So, for example, we have a population of Hispanic students at our school. And to be frank with you, I do not know a lot about the Hispanic culture. So recently I've been going out, you know, meeting with families, going to different restaurants, learning different ways that they maneuver so I can better inform my students. If America wants to become better at serving all of our children, we must step out of our own privilege and build relationships with those communities and therefore be able to give them the content they need in order to be successful. Do you think there's any way for other teachers to adopt your model, or is it really just they have to keep trying harder like you did? I think I saw, I was reading the other day, and, and actually Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, he was talking about how passion is 
anger and happiness mixed together uh, <laughs> towards a certain mm-hmm. goal. And a part of passion with me is growing up through the, the school system and seeing how a bunch of my friends and, and cousins and family members were a part of the educational malpractice, meaning that there were certain times that they had educators who did not give them their all. And that bothers me because when I look back through reflection, I can see that their life could possibly be better if they knew about other opportunities. So I think educators truly need to understand the weight of our job. And essentially, it's not even just a job. It's an actual calling. It's a calling with a legacy attached to it. And when you understand that every child that comes into contact with you, you have the ability to either steer them towards greatness or I think it will change the way you approach education. Every day it is hard for me. I have 13 guided reading groups I serve every single day on top of me speaking when I do have the opportunity that I'm so grateful for. And even though it is hard, it is necessary, it is worth it, because I know if I can teach a child to read effectively, if I can teach a child to analyze information properly, they will be able to tap into something they probably never know they ever could do. And, and that's more than enough for me. I think educators just truly need to understand you know, what, do, what they bring to the table and how their life can actually impact the student's classroom. Has your passion spread beyond your classroom into the rest of South Greenville Elementary? Have things changed at the school itself? At times. And any person that is a part of any type of school coach will understand there are different types of teachers inside of the school building. People often forget that before individuals are actual educators, they are human beings first. <laughs> so their life experiences, the individuals that they deal with, the situations that they deal with, mold who they are. Sure. So a teacher uh, with an anal personality that is very stoic is not uh, get along with a teacher like me because sometimes I can be exuberant my passion towards in the classroom, you know, how we're moving around and collaborating and high-fiving and things of that magnitude. So some teachers catch on and some teachers don't. This is the life of every school system across America. But I think if we can find a way to get people to join in unity, in passion, and understanding their purpose, it'll make it a lot better. Passion doesn't mean you have to stand on top of the table or make a song in regards to the content. Mm-hmm. Passion just means that every day you step into the classroom, whether you're sick or whether you're tired, you're trying to give your students your all so they can be successful. They don't have to be you. They just have to be themselves with passion. Have to be the best. They have to be the best individual that they can be. One of the best things my mentor Ron Clark tells me and Kim Beard tells me all the time is that the only <laughs> you only have to do is be the best you that you can possibly because nobody else can be you. And and being the best you also means that reflecting on the weak areas that you bring to the table, your strengths mm-hmm. and your weaknesses. As long as you continually self develop, that is what makes the difference. There was a study that was published in August 2018 that followed three phenomenal teachers from California that scored that school sport. 10% above the state average of reading every single year. And the three things that they noticed about the teachers, well, two specifically, one was that students can and will learn, that students' learning is reflective of their individual teaching, meaning that whatever the student scores, the teachers take ownership of that, saying that it comes from a result of their pedagogy. And number three, they made sure that they stated that they took pride and they made sure they were intentional about their own professional development. Right. So in order for it to be a phenomenal teacher, it doesn't just have to be about attending your classroom or you know, staying on top of the table and screaming. It's really about your mindset and your willingness to become the best educator that you can possibly be. So, Michael, if you could wave a magic wand and, and change anything about the current teaching model, what, how would you do that? What would you, what would you ask for? Would it be more passion, more money, more, more of all of the above? Hmm. The reason why I would say not money right now, even though we should get paid more, 
Um, because there's been studies that showed even if we were paid more money, that's not the, the biggest effect on student performance or student proficiency. But I do believe teachers should be paid more <laughs> because we <laughs> actually are working two, two, three jobs just to survive for some of us. And they can put all of our energy into teaching if we could. If anything, I would say to wave a wand upon our mindset and understanding the value that we bring to America. Um, sure. And when waving that wand, that means renewing our passion. That means eradicating any implicit bias towards students. That means making sure that we're informing our students with true pedagogy, not just historical rhetoric that we've been passed on to us through our past teachers. We can wind up in our mindset. And I think once we start there, we can begin to see a lot of things happen. Our school culture climates will begin to change because teachers will understand their passion. Our performance and test scores begin to change because we will understand that we need to put best practices within the classroom, including culturally responsive teaching. I think starting with the mind first is, is the best aspect. Start with the mind, the body will follow. And then we can actually inform other educators of the actual comments going on. <laughs> if people in the legislative realm that are not voting <laughs> to our liking, then we can simply vote them out. <laughs> sure. <laughs> or or raise students who are informative of the different problems and things that we're going or informative problems that are going on in America and then raise them to be the leaders that we need to see in America or across the world. So essentially just uh, make the teachers more aware of their own importance and make everyone else aware of the teacher's importance. Yes. And I, I think people don't understand that until you come across a student that you had and they're not doing great. It makes you think, what, did it, what went wrong with that? They're going to have about 12 different teachers. And every teacher has a responsibility to carry. But we know in America right now that's, that's just not accurate. The crew that everybody's so fascinated that went to the Ellen DeGeneres show, when they were with me, they had six referrals because they're not perfect. They're human. Sure. When they actually went to third grade, they had 72 referrals, the same class. Hmm. So there's a lot of things that change and shift amongst children. And as educators, we have to become united to figure out how can we do better. Right. Well, fantastic. We really appreciate you joining us, Michael. You're Thank such you. an inspiration. Honor. Kim loves you. <laughs> <laughs> You're so inspiring. I want to go to Bonnerville. <laughs> oh, anytime. You can come anytime. I'm, I'm super excited. There's a lot of phenomenal things happening inside of 2019 that I can't wait this year. So we're, we're just, we're just trucking along. We're just trying to give the best. I'm trying to approach education as if my own child is in the classroom. Yeah. Be the teacher that I would want my own child to have. And if I can achieve that, I'm not worried. I can sleep at night. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Michael. Thank you. Next week, we'll be talking to Adrian Pedroza. He's the National Director of Strategic Partnerships for nonprofit Abriendo Puertas, a parent education program developed by and for Latino parents of children ages 0 to 5. Now, a final thought. A few weeks ago, we interviewed Elizabeth Burak of the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families about the importance of health insurance for kids. Today, the center released a report that shows that the number of uninsured children has risen for the first time in a decade. Almost 4 million children across the country are without health insurance. Joan Alker, lead author of the report and executive director of the center, said, While this may not seem like a huge change, these increases are unprecedented when examining this for the last decade. More troubling is that it increased during a time of economic strength, when one would expect the uninsured rate to go down. Here's your homework. Take a look at the report and see how many kids in your state don't have health insurance. Is there anything you can do to help change that? Talk to you next week.
That's so good. I thought that was sweet. He's so good. He's so good. Yeah. I mean, it was all about like he had a f- so like good. we did not know what that focus was going to be, but he knew what it was, he, and he kept it on. He was on 